2: Hello, I'm Tom Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the, the James, James Bond ATZ podcast.
1: podcast. Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on
2: a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films. By learning about the people who made them, in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond 80Z Podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond, E.ON or The Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbondaz.co.uk.
1: Well, thank you for joining us again for another episode of the James Bond A to Z podcast. We are your hosts, and we have six new topics for us to talk about this week, all beginning with the letter B. Uh, it's an exciting show this week, actually. There's a, a good variation in the topics, I think. Lots of insight into the world of James Bond. And to kick us off,
2: it's Mr Tom Wheatley. Hello. Who have you got? B is for Binder, Morris Binder. Now, this is one that uh, I was quite excited to do this one because it's, um, it's one of those... Those Bond characters or Bond creators that everyone kind of knows quite a bit about, or they've heard about, but they don't really know too much about how that person has been involved in the the whole Bond series as it goes on. And there's there's few people that are, are so heavily associated with uh, Bond as, as as Morris Binder has been um, since since the start of it. Bit of bit of background information on Morris. So he was born in. Um, August 1925 from New York City uh, and he died in England in 1991. Spent a lot of time in England um, later in his life. He was a film title designer best known for his works on 14 of the James Bond films um, and he is perhaps most famous for the gun barrel sequence that you see in all of the Bond films and is, it, it even exists after uh, Morris Binder stopped being involved in it. But he was, um, before he worked on, on, on Bond films, he worked his way up as um, a art director in Macy's department store. And then uh, later on, moved to the West Coast where he worked for a number of um, companies, including Columbia Pictures. Uh, never married. Um, but people who knew him would often describe him as uh, quite a charming ladies' man with a special talent for taking models out of their clothes. So uh, nice bit of background there on on <laughs> Morris. Um, so he he did. Uh, so I said he did fourteen Bond. Title sequences um, that wasn't chronological. He started off doing the title sequence for Doctor No. He didn't do the title sequences for From Russia of Love and Goldfinger, although it was his team who did it. According to um, according to him, he was having a bit of a ruckus at the time with the producers on the film, so he didn't get too heavily involved in those two sequences. He is uh, he he did it all the way up until the last Dalton film um, until Daniel Kleinman took over. Uh, in GoldenEye, so that wasn't him. Um, but he did he did the, everything up until then, apart from those two films. Other films that he did in the past, and there's quite a lot of these, he's done dozens and dozens of films, many of which I haven't heard of, but um, some of them include uh, Charade, which was a Cary Grant film, which you might have seen. Very good, very interesting sequence. Uh, later on, after he worked on Bond, was The Last Emperor, um, but the film that he did the title sequence for, which got him the Bond role, was a film called *The Grass Is Greener*, which I again haven't seen, but I quite like it because it sounds quite good. It's got uh, this sequence he does. The film I'm not the, the film's about Cary Grant um, and uh, it had Robert Mitchum in it, Deborah Kerr and Gene Simmons, and um, it's kind of about um, a, a rich aristocrat who falls for a loud American. But the title sequence is very interesting because the way that he did it was he, in the style that you, you kind of associate with a lot of his title sequences, he, he did that with each of the characters as babies. Um, you, should, you should check it out on YouTube because it's quite interesting how he's done it and it's, it's quite a modern style in, in, in how he's pulled it all together. But that was the sequence that Saltzman and, and Broccoli saw and they thought, right, we're going to speak to this guy. And that's why I got involved in in Doctor No. Um, which was uh, where he came up with the initial sequence for the um, gun barrel, which is probably much like um, Monty Norman and John Barry. It's one of the archetypal parts of the whole Bond structure that is pretty much always there. It isn't necessarily there in the same way, and it has developed quite a lot over over time. But um, that, that... thing he pulled together is fairly an important part of the whole whole process so when he was asked to do it by um broccoli and saltzman he actually pulled it together and it was it, he said it was quite last minute and um he 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 was like 20 minutes before uh, having a meeting with them and he had lots of little white labels that he was using for I don't know, organizing his desk and his office and things like that and he used those to explain the gun sequence that he had in mind. And um, it was quite rushed at the time, but he said they absolutely loved it. And it became uh, kind of how they built that initial sequence. I don't, do you remember the, the the sequence that starts in, in Dr. No for the gun title sequence? It's quite a specific style. Um, at the time, Morris was quite into pop art and the whole pop media world. And the design of those that, that intro opening credits is very interesting in terms of lots of dots. The gun barrel turns into a yes. dot that then becomes part of the the, yeah. the sequence, and it's it's a very distinct distinctive style that he he used. Um, but that was all off the back of these these little stickers that he just popped up on the on the board to explain what happens with the gun barrel and 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 how that would look. Uh, so he that that kind of sequence they loved it. It worked really well. The way that they used it in that um, opening credit sequence was. Very clever in terms of how they the gun barrel actually turns into a dot, which then turns into a, a a dot on a combination of dots, and then starts moving around the screen. And it's that idea that you see in a lot of other films. So the gun barrel sequence is generally an opening to something in the film. It might be opening up the scene. It might be um, in the case of Casino Royale, the gun barrel sequence actually becomes part of the scene itself, if you remember, he shoots somebody mm-hmm. and then the gun barrel pops up over him and then the film starts. So they use that quite a lot of different ways throughout throughout the films. So yeah, that was the start of the the, the sequence. Um and that went on I'll go into a bit more detail about that so you can, in a bit. I'll just talk a little bit more about the um the pop culture side of it. Because morris Binder's style was very much it's quite distinctive. Um and it was in many ways it, it kind of mirrored the the artistic style um that was happening in terms of like cool design and things like that at the time but the bonds style is actually very different and if you remember in goldfinger there's a a line where he makes fun of the Beatles because he doesn't like them, he doesn't like pop culture and Bond almost dis- it, it's like separates himself from popular culture, he doesn't like cool music he doesn't go out to cool places, he's a refined man and they had a bit of a problem with Morris in that his titles were actually quite cool and they, they were hip and, and happening, I think Austin Powers and, and things like that <laughs> so that that's one thing that really distinguishes um, Morris Binder's openings is that they they don't really sit necessarily with the Bond films in that you'd expect something a lot more reserved and and kind of refined for those titles. But they're actually quite cool 60s, 70s style designs that um, you wouldn't normally expect. And then also that 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 style that he's got, it's one of the most important features towards the whole kind of glue of the Bond films because if you think about it, Morris Binder's worked across four Different Bond actors, five if you count uh, Bob Simmons, who actually played, who actually did the gun barrel shot in the first um, three films, I think. Um, But his opening credits are like the glue that holds them all together. They've all got a similar style. They're all. It's all about a man shooting a gun through 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 a gun barrel, and that consistency you need at the start of each film because you suddenly go, "This is a Bond film. This is exactly what I was expecting." If they changed that every time, it wouldn't have had that effect so he's got quite an important part to play in the kind of ongoing style and design of, of the Bond series
1: well the barrel is still the is still the logo isn't it of the of the whole franchise you look at the box sets and the mm. social media accounts and it's the gun barrel isn't it it's like the defining
2: yeah trans-
0: yeah yeah trans- and it's such a simple actors.
2: thing it was just an idea he had at the time he said I just want to shoot through um just as if it he's shooting um, an, an assassin that's trying to get Bond, and Bond gets him before before he gets him, and um, he he actually shot it through a gun barrel, um, and he he apparently spent ages trying to do the shot and actually use a camera to shoot through a, a gun barrel, at an actor, but it was it was impossible because the focus just it didn't work. He was saying that he'd mm-hmm. get the front of the gun barrel in but the back of the gun barrel wouldn't be in focus. And then if he changed the focus, it would, it would be the opposite way. And he couldn't get it to work. So his assistant um, said to him, I've got an idea. And he used a, a pinhole in a bit of cardboard and just put it up against the, the barrel and they shot through the pinhole. And then suddenly the focus and everything worked perfectly. And then they mixed it with the actual shot of a man shooting a gun, the blood coming down in, the, in, in most of the... Opening credit sequences, so they mix. They he blended a lot of different bits of film together, but that that shot in, in the original with the gun barrel is a real gun barrel, and it's it's pretty much spot on. And Morris Binder did say that that was his favorite; that it, it never got any better than that. That was pretty much spot on. And later on, they they change it and they add you know different ways to do it until the point where you get to the um, Brosnan ones, and it's just CGI, and some of those get very ridiculous. Um, well, the Die Another Day one uh, doesn't a bullet come yes. through the barrel? Yeah, yeah. The the, the bullet actually shoots the audience, <laughs> but that's Die Another Day all over, isn't it? You, you, if, if it? If it if it if it didn't have that, you'd be like, what is this? What's going on here? Um, so yeah, they they kind of that's de- developed a lot of the time. But but he did say that that first one was really the the best take, and it just worked really well. The, and mm. if you if you look through, I think there's some good videos on YouTube where. You can see them all back to back and they all are slightly different but um, even the same actor doing them has different ones because throughout the series they had to change because of the different film ratios and it, Orange Binder had to keep coming back and do new ones um, other interesting things with that is the uh, You Only Live Twice one was filmed in black and white or was shown in black and white and they reused You Only Live Twice one for Dimes are forever, but they didn't use it in black and white. Um, ah, fun fact. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Then uh when Roger Moore came in, obviously he had to have his, his new one shot, he was the first Bond actor to not wear a hat in the in the um opening sequence. Um he's also I don't think he's wearing a suit, or he was wearing some weird sort of suit in it. Um, and then a couple of films later, it might inspire Love Me. He um, wore a tuxedo. First time anyone tuxedo it. So these slight little differences in the opening sequence, but they're actually quite momentous in the in the whole kind of ongoing um, Bond storyline. And then you you get through and it, and it's all it's all down to this um, screen sizing ratios and stuff like that. And uh, it was it was a thing that Maurice Binder had a lot of issues with because when uh, his films went to TV. They would be re-edited because when you're watching a film on cinema you can move it to tv because it just does does like a and takes a crop of it but when you're designing a title sequence or an opening credit sequence where it's all about the design you'll cut off really important chunks of it so he said a lot of the time that he'd he'd be his work would be sent across to the tv studios to 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 show and they'd re-edit his title sequences and they just take chunks out. So there might be a bit of Sheena Easton sing- Sheena- singing on the right-hand side of the screen, and she'd just be gone because she just wouldn't see it in that, in that crop. And he absolutely hated it. Uh, and there were other things as well, like on TV, they had to move the copy to be on the one side and things like that. So it just completely changed his his formatting. So yeah, the, then um, later on, obviously, the it all became quite computer-generated with uh, Daniel Kleinman getting involved. But he, th- there's, there's the same... Format and the same design is still used consistently um, across all of them. I mentioned, I mentioned that the, um, in Casino Royale, the gunshot was part of the plot, and Daniel Craig shoots a man and then it turns into the, uh, the, the actual gun barrel sequence. But also in Quantum and Skyfall, the gun barrel sequence is at the end of the film, not at the start. So, yeah, that's uh, an interesting change, and it went back to it in Spectre. Interesting. More interesting facts about Morris Binder. The title sequence for Moonraker costs more than the entire budget of Doctor No. Wow. <laughs> wow. Pretty impressive, isn't it? Uh, Spy Who love Me. First Bond film, um, uh, first time Bond was actually added to the silhouettes in the opening sequence. So up until that point, it was only women. Uh moving around naked largely licking guns and jumping on trampolines but then <laughs> then they, they put him in and then and, and and later on you actually see more you see Sheena Easton is the first actual singer and the only one actually in all of the um Bond opening sequences to be in the be in that sequence so yeah that's so he's he's had quite a lot of changes gone on in those in those um opening sequences over the years and they've been Copied in many ways in different films, not specifically referencing Bond, but that style has been seen quite a bit. That's it, really. He's he's, he's fairly important to the Bond world, and um... definitely a hall of famer. I mean, he, he, his,
1: he just defines the those opening Titan sequences are just so like Bond, aren't they? The with the images projected yeah. onto the onto the bodies, and he just pioneered all of that, didn't he? And from what yeah. I what I understand. He was, I think he was given he he was tasked with doing them at the end of the film, so the films would be finished, and then they'd hand the films to him, and then he would just have to tack on the title sequence. I I could yeah. be wrong in that, but he would get them,
2: and then he would he he would be the last thing that gets done. Yeah, he famously had to, famously had to do them very quickly a yeah. lot of the time. Yeah, he, his turnaround time was really really short on it, so he had to do, come up with quite innovative ways to to actually pull it together. But interestingly as well, um, the Doctor No opening sequence is it doesn't have all the hallmarks of a, a James Bond opening sequence. It doesn't have lots of naked women and the, the style of it. It was only in for, From History of Love and Goldfinger, the two he didn't really get involved with, where that that started. And then it just carried on. So it wasn't really him specifically that came up with some of that style. It was his team that, that did it. The guy who um, worked for him was called Robert Brownjohn. Yeah, I guess we'll do uh, we'll,
1: we'll do him as uh, as well when we get to his his his
2: place in the the A to Z I guess. Oh, yeah, is he on the list? He's on the list. Oh, perfect. Well, um yeah, so so lots of other parts of this opening credits sequence storyline that um, we can go into.
1: B is for black. Don black. Uh, just a heads up, there will be a bit of crossover here and stuff we've already covered with Bassey and Barry. Uh, so I'll try and keep the crossover to a minimum. But uh, yeah, Don Black, born Donald Blackstone in June 1938. Don Black, as he is obviously known, he's an OBE, an Oscar winning English lyricist. He wrote uh, the lyrics for a number of uh, James Bond songs. Some would probably say the best James Bond songs. Uh, he started in 1965 with Thunderball, by, sung by Tom Jones. Then he did Diamonds Are Forever by Shirley Bassey. Lulu's the man with the golden gun, Surrender by Katie Lang for Tomorrow Never Dies, and then The World Is Not Enough for garbage, with, with garbage for the film <laughs> The World Is Not Enough in 1999. And so, um, but but who is, this is a good little segue there, but who is the man who Robbie Williams once called the, the Pele of Lyricists?
2: Oh, <laughs> That's a football reference, Wheatley. Yeah. So Well, I, 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 I don't often get Robbie Williams references either, so... Um... <laughs>
1: But uh, yeah, so Don Black, he he was the youngest of five children, grew up in Hackney, started out as an office boy at a music publishing firm, and then he became a song plugger and then was the manager of the singer Matt Monroe. And this is where the Bond connection begins, because Matt Monroe famously sang the theme tune for from Russia with Love. Uh, But he says he never set out to be a lyricist. He just decided to give it a go when he saw a friend in Denmark Street receiving a royalty check for 1500 quid. Because uh, obviously Denmark Street is the home of music in, in in the UK. And so he was there as a record plugger, saw someone getting this huge check and thought, I could do that. And he really he said he really wanted to write classy ballads. And obviously this is in the 1960s, in the height of rock and roll. So he was, you know, quite bold in it, in his thinking then. So he started off, like I said, with Matt Monroe writing lyrics for him Um and they would write a lot of they would get a lot of european hits and then rewrite them and re-record them for the english market and it was their version matt Monroe and um don black's version of a song called walk away which is an austrian eurovision hit that caught the ear of john barry in 1964 uh, john barry loved that song it was about a man who falls in love with a younger girl don black told the guardian he said it was something that john could relate to <laughs> And that's when he said the life's changing sentence to me. Do you want to have a go at Thunderball? So he got me into the world of Bond. So this is there. Obviously, we talked about this uh, with Shirley Bassey. Thunderball was a meant, to, meant to have another song called Mr. Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, that was then pulled by United, Art, United Artists at the studio. And the new song was commissioned. And Don Black and John Barry had to write the song in a real rush. Uh, so talking to the stage and screen podcast, Black said, the first thing as I did is like when i wrote thunderball was to look it up in the dictionary and it wasn't there so there isn't a word <laughs> called thunderball and i didn't know what to do and in the film it's kind of a code word so i used the strikes like thunderball bit it doesn't bear close examination but it has a kind of danger and the law of the forbidden thing that is essential in any bond song so obviously it was performed then by tom jones it reached 35 in the uk charts Um, And so before he worked on his next James Bond film, him and John Barry worked on Born Free, which is when they won their Oscar. Ah. So, yeah, obviously then became very in demand. Um, So with Shirley Bassey, obviously Sean Connery and Shirley Bassey returning for Diamonds Are Forever. John Barry decided, you know, it's time to bring Don Black in. And Don Black was brought to write lyrics for the song. Um, as we discussed before when we talk about Shirley Bassey, the lyrics to that song are very innuendo heavy. Um, and so Harry Saltzman was not happy. But Don Black said, Cederness is what we wanted. It had to be over the top with a dash of vulgarity. So although uh, John Barry apparently told Shirley Bassey to sing as if she was singing about a penis, Don Black insists that it wasn't his <laughs> intention. He, he insists that he was always talking about diamonds. But, you know, it's about penises. <laughs> Um, so the song was used, it won an Ivan Novello, uh, Novello Award, and Don Black says he once met Steven Spielberg, who told him it was his favourite Bond song ever. And it is a great one, right? Diamonds are forever.
2: Oh, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. It just
1: sets like, yeah, it just sets that film up great. I mean, it's not a great Bond film, yeah. but really the music is brilliant. Next, they worked together on The Man with the Golden Gun, and they were only given three weeks to do the score for this one. Barry's not a fan of that song, and neither is Don Black. (laughs) He says uh, he wasn't inspired by the title. He says, you're talking about an assassin. You can't imagine Tony Bennett singing it. It's hard to create a standard with that title. Um, And so the song itself, he said what they came up with, he, he says it was a bit on the nose. You know, he has a powerful weapon. I mean, it's just... It yeah. takes it to another yeah. level. It's not the... Gr- Euro-
2: Eurovision Bond music.
1: Yeah, it's a dreadful Bond theme. Uh, I mean, Lulu did the song. Uh, Black had worked with her before, and so that's why she was brought in. Um, and a uh, fun fact for you about the worst Bond theme, or one of the worst ones, it was the only Bond film title track not to chart as a single in either UK or the US. So wow. there you have it.
2: I, see, I, I always quite like the, uh, the one from Man with the Golden Gun. Quite poppy, quite interesting. I probably liked it when I was younger. It's I
1: don't know it when you when you put it next to Diamonds Are Forever or you know even yeah. even like
2: even it's the not a very months. epic Bond song, is it? It's it's very all over the place.
1: Mm. Uh, so Black didn't work on a Bond film men until 1997 on Tomorrow Never Dies, and now David mm-hmm. Arnold was obviously in charge of the Bond themes, the Bond score. Sorry following eric serra's golden eye score which i guess we'll talk about at a later date um. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so david arnold brought don black in to write lyrics for a song that he'd written for the film called surrender which was eventually was sung by Katie land which is really fascinating because he built the whole score around this song but it only plays over the end credits so there's a bit of dispute about whether or not he the song was replaced on the opening titles uh, both um, David Arnold and Don Black say this wasn't the case. Sher- um, Cheryl Crowe was always meant to sing, sing the theme song, but it, it the, the whole t- the whole theme the whole score is built around this song. So it, it is a brilliant song, yeah. and mm-hmm. so. Um Don Black said, I hate to say this really, but why not? But you get to a stage in your life where you, where you say what you feel. But I do think that one of the best things I've ever written is Surrender from Tomorrow Never Dies uh, that he did with David Arnold. He said to, on the stage and screen online podcast, he said it became the end title. Katie Lang sang it. It's such a good piece. A lot of people have emailed me and said it should have been the title song. So, yeah, uh, but he said he had no hard feelings about it. Um, and so the, his final contribution to Bond came with the lyrics for "The World Is Not Enough." Again, written by David Arnold, lyrics by David Don Black, and performed by Garbage, uh, and they also produced it as well. And it sounds like a, it, it, you can tell it's been produced beyond just being the you know the, by the theme by the writers of the theme song. They it's got very much feels like a Garbage song as well as a as a James Bond thing. Yeah. Yeah. And interestingly, it's told from the perspective of the antagonist, Electro King. Um, ah. So um,
2: I don't he, think I've ever actually listened to the words of that song.
1: Yeah, the world is not enough. And so he said he was struggling with the lyrics for this song. Uh, the world is not enough until his wife, um, Shirley, uh, she opened the post one morning and she said, Don, you've been given an OBE. What wonderful news. And,
2: uh, <laughs> that's what. That's exactly what you would say. <laughs> and Don
1: and Don replied, "Well, it's not a knighthood, but it's the perfect place to start." And then he thought, "That's my line. That's the second line of the song." Uh, he said, nice. "Yeah, the lyrics reflect the film's plot. Uh, they're all about world domination." Um, uh, and he says it's a lot more personal and intense, uh, and has a ba- more de- ballady and dramatic mood. Um, it also, mm. interestingly, has a line of dialogue from the film: "There's no point in living if you can't feel alive." So obviously written for Garbage, uh, there, Shirley Manson demanded that they change one of the lines. And the line that they changed was, I know when to kiss and I know when to kill. Uh, she just said that she didn't want to sing that. And so it's changed to, uh, we know when to kiss and we know when to kill, I think. so. Uh, mm, big difference there? Not really a great deal of difference, no. Um <laughs> there's more to be said about the song i think we'll do it again when we talk about the world is not enough in more detail but it was the subject of a lawsuit um someone else said that they had written the song and uh yeah that they they'd stolen the the music for it but that's that's not not true but actually one more thing about don black and the world is not enough they wrote another song for the end credits called only myself to blame and this was recorded by the iconic 60s art star scott walker uh, and they wanted it to be done in the in the vein of uh, We Have All the Time in the World. And it's told from a mm. the perspective of a retired James Bond. Has that been released? Well, you can listen to it on YouTube. It wasn't included on the soundtrack and it wasn't used because it was considered too much of a downer, but it is a brilliant song. Um, it's really good. Um, so I'll sort of wrap up on, on Don Black now, but just a couple of things to say. So... Uh, This is is a quote uh, from him. People often ask me how I go about writing a Bond song. And he says, well, I always believe it should be provocative, seductive and have a whiff of the boudoir about it. There should be the lure of the forbidden, a kind of theatrical vulgarity as you are drawn into Bond's mysterious world. Um, yes, well. Yeah, I think that's that's about right, isn't it? I mean, again, his impact on the Bond films is, is immeasurable. Um, and just one last thing to wrap up with: obviously, he, he's known for tons of different things. He, re- he worked a lot with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and uh, "Born Free" is, is is his favorite, his famous Oscar-winning song. Uh, and he recently had coronavirus, and this is a great little yeah. story. But when he left the hospital after being uh, treated, the staff lined up to applaud him as he left and serenaded him with a version of "Born Free." Uh, the Oscar-winning nice. song that he wrote in 1965. That's great. Which is a fantastic not the Katie
0: song. Not the K.D. Lang song.
1: Not Surrender, no. <laughs> Surrender. <laughs> <laughs> no. No. So that's Black. Don Black. And, uh, yeah, what, uh, what, what a great songwriter.
0: Bloom. Harold Jack Bloom. So, born in 1924 in America... He's a screenwriter, Oscar-nominated screenwriter, who was big in the 50s, 60s, and then went on to do TV uh, later on in his career. He was a specialist in westerns, espionage, and, and that's why he was brought in on You Only Live Twice. So Richard Maybaum was unavailable, um, and he had written the, the previous, uh, and, and been a part of the previous Bond projects. He was unavailable, and the producers of the, of the of You Only Live Twice, they wanted Harold Bloom to do it. So they took him to Japan with them to write, to write the screenplay, delivered a piece of work, which they rejected. Weren't a fan of it, and still used several of his ideas, which actually uh, Harry Saltzman stole. <laughs> Not really stole, but he borrowed. So they replaced Harold Bloom with Roald Dahl, and they brought him in to... Add, add fat to the to the bones that that Harold Bloom's work but they wanted him to keep certain things that Bloom had written which Saltzman was a big fan of so Bond's fake death at the beginning and the burial at sea was already in that script that was handed to Roald Dahl because the producers requested that that was kept Dahl believed it was part of the the work He he wasn't told specifically Uh, that it was Bloom but because it was in there already he assumed it was and he said, um, my guess is it was the idea of Mr Bloom they had probably, and they hadn't told me commissioned a screenplay from him and it hadn't been any good but they picked out that idea and possibly one or two others which they asked me to put in. Um, This meant Bloom has got a credit on the film as additional story material which is quite vague but that's probably part of the the contract that, that was drawn up afterwards, when he was told that he wasn't going to be part of it, and that's what Dahl also th- thought. The first time I heard of Bloom wanting to share in the credits was after the film had been cut, and I was told there would be a share. I said, "Well, there's no no way anyone's going to share the full credit," and so there was a bit of a dispute about that. But they managed to get round it and hand him his additional story material credit. He then continued. Harold Bloom continued working up right until right up until 1989 until he retired mainly on television and lived his last years in los angeles uh, where he died in 1999 at the age of 75 it's a tiny part of the bond universe that he plays we can't actually be sure which parts of that script it it seems definitely the death and the burial at sea are two things that were, were stayed in that script but looking into it it's very hard to find if there's anything else that that lasts from that script that he handed to the producers
1: Interesting that he demanded credit, though. I guess when you're a writer, that's all you've got, right? Exactly.
2: And you want want the Bond credit, don't you? Definitely. Uh, Yeah, huge huge credit, isn't it?
1: It's interesting what you said as well about Saltzman using that part of the the script, even though it wasn't a a used script. I'm reading this really good book at the moment, The Lost Adventures of James Bond. And um, even on the scripts that they don't use, there are echoes of what happens in the scripts that pop up in later films like consistently every single unused script there's an idea in there that ends up in a later one um yeah and so you know i guess when you sign up to do one of these things like your film might not get made but rest assured if you've got a good idea they're going to use it at some point
2: and if and and if your ideas are used in a bond film chances are it's going to stand the test of time and people are going to be using it in films for years to come and referencing just the simplest thing that you might put in like that, the engulfing laser beam thing. Yeah. Whoever wrote that, you probably know who wrote that. I don't know off the top of my head who wrote that. But um, whoever did that, if they didn't get credit for that, they would be so angry yeah. for the rest of their lives that they didn't get that one thing because it's such an important f- feature. You wouldn't care if you're writing a Bourne film, would you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fine. Leave me off.
0: But the, the, the thing is, so yeah, that script that he has handed to them, obviously they, they would have kept that on, you know, on, on the file they're making more films and they're stuck of ideas oh let's go and dig in and see what's what we can steal from that mm. yeah, and I guess that's the beauty enough. of uh,
1: the beauty of the continuity of having the one family that's made these films is they can always say like from Cubby Broccoli onto you know Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Wil- Barbara Broccoli and all these people they can always say oh we wrote that script in 1986
2: that's got that
0: bit yeah, in it hasn't yeah. it
1: yeah can let's that. go into
0: the archives go into Yoink. the
1: archives <laughs> yeah. dig it out uh, and, yeah. well, and
2: the other thing as well is when, if somebody writes something in 1968 something like that at the time it's probably just we'll just get rid of it but by the time it comes around to 2020 you look back and you go there's this amazing script we've got from 1968 <laughs> that we're going to pull something out but what at the time? We didn't want to use it. Yeah. So it becomes vintage scripting.
0: Exactly. So there we go. That's Harold Jack Bloom. B-
2: is for BMW. So as you're probably aware, Aston Martin is a car brand that's been associated with Bond since day one. But for a slight period in the 90s, BMW had a piece of the action. Quiz question for you. How many films have had BMWs in them from the Bond series? Oh, from, the Bond, from the Bond series. <laughs> no, that would be too hard a question. <laughs> I'll go for four. The four Brosnan ones? It is four, but it's not the four Brosnan ones. Ah. It's There's only three Brosnan ones that have got a BMW in. Die Another Day doesn't have a BMW. They go back to the Aston Martins. for ah, the, uh, the invisible car. The fourth one, because it was a three-car deal that BMW had. The other car, the, the other time it was in a Bond film, was actually years before um, in Octopussy, where there were two BMW 518i cars used by the West German police that are chasing Bond. Fun fact. So that was the first time that BMW played a a proper role within um, the Bond series. But anyway, getting back to the big story, BMW never had a proper association with Bond, but in uh, GoldenEye, when it was launched, it was the first time that BMW had been in there. And it was a bit of a shock, really, to Bond fans because you kind of expected to always see an Aston Martin. I certainly remember when I went to the cinema and, and, and saw it, Seeing him drive a BMW was a bit of a bit of a strange um, scenario because you kind of as a as a young man growing up in Britain, Aston Martins were almost like fictional cars. You'd never see one. You'd never you'd never get to drive in one. Your none of your friends' parents would have a Aston Martin car. They'd have BMWs though. There would be parents driving around in BMWs. So it wasn't a particularly exciting car. Um so when when the BMW appeared in in Goldeneye, it certainly had a bit of an effect on the on the Bond fans around the world, going, "What's going on here? This is this isn't a this isn't an Aston Martin." Now there was an Aston Martin in GoldenEye, which you'll remember, but it wasn't in for very long. The BMW Z3 was used not very much in the film. If you um, there's a, there's a point earlier on where um, I think Jack Wade speaking with Bond about the um, BMW. And he's talking about, and Q's talking about all of the things that it's got in, like rocket launches and stuff like that. Barely uses any of it. He literally gets in the car, drives around. It has two minutes of screen time, and then it's gone. That's the last you see of the um, Z3, which is a bit weird. One, you've got the lead up. If Q explains that a car or a device does something, you kind of expect that it's going to happen. And when I was doing the research for this, there was a lot of forums where they were saying, is there a deleted scene to GoldenEye? Because I've just watched it but I can't see where they've used all of these gadgets that are on the car. Never happened. Didn't exist. There's not really a reason for this, but I did a bit of looking into the cost of the films. Um, Goldeneye was made on a £60 million budget, which is tiny for a Bond film, especially a modern Bond film. Compared to Tomorrow Never Dies, which was at £110 million to make the film, you can see there's a pretty big difference there. And I imagine that to film car sequences with missiles and all this sort of stuff, it's probably cost quite a lot of money. So I imagine it was down to budget that they didn't use the car effectively. Mm. That budget allocation stuff goes all the way across GoldenEye because a lot of the locations and um, places where they that, that, where they film, it's generally, a lot of it is actually quite cheap to use. There's a lot of open spaces, a lot of places where there's you're not like, tying down whole building structures and things like that. So less budget on GoldenEye probably meant that they didn't really use the car effectively. That was the first time that BMW was in, in the film. The interesting thing about BMW working with um, the Bond series is that they did it as part of a deal. So they didn't pay any money to have the BMWs used in the films. They did it as a co-marketing deal. So the the whole process was for the three years, BMW would market James Bond films and then James Bond would have BMWs in in the movies. No money changed hands. But the actual cost of the cars and things was quite high anyway. So BMW probably did end up paying quite a lot of money for it. The car, the Z3 didn't actually, it wasn't actually ready at the time of the film going live. So nobody knew about what the Z3 was before then. It was a completely new car. And there was a press campaign that started and 500 journalists came along to this to this big um, unveiling of the BMW partnership with, with, with Bond series. And... Um, it was a shipping container that had bmw written on it and then at the side of it there was a ferrari and the other side there was an aston martin but they didn't actually show what the bmw was because they couldn't because <laughs> it wasn't released yet so it's all this big secretive thing about showing off this partnership deal with with bmw for bmw it worked like phenomenally people left right and center were buying the, the z3 and it sold out within a day or a couple of days and there were celebrities all over the place buying this car. Alec Baldwin bought one for his wife, uh, Kim Basinger. Madonna bought some for some friends. Steven Spielberg bought one of the white and blue cars for his 75-year-old mother at the time. But for motor enthusiasts and Bond fans alike, it never really, really impressed anyone because the problem with the Z3 Roadster and BMW in general is that the car's they're much more mainstream. They're not elite cars. They're not cars that anyone can buy. And the the difference in price between something like the um, BMW Z3, I think that was around 30k at the time, which isn't a massive amount for a car uh, if you're looking at that kind of elite level of car. The Aston Martin Vanquish around that time, slightly later, was £225,000. <laughs> so you can see the difference in those two cars. And that's part of the excitement in watching Bond drive, in the, drive those cars. You're thinking, wow, this is amazing. He gets to drive these cool cars.
1: He's a refined character. He has a refined car,
2: right? Refined car. And you look at him and you think, oh, I, I want that car. And that's the whole point of Bond, isn't it? You want, you aspire to be him, but you feel like you could. You could eventually one day have a 250,000-pound car or whatever. 30,000-pound BMW Roadster isn't that aspirational, really. It's, it's fine. It's nice. It's probably a, quite a nice car to drive, but it's not amazing. It's not like a fictional car that you'd do anything for. Didn't receive a lot of good response from real, real motor fans. So then we come on to Tomorrow Never Dies. Now, Tomorrow Never Dies is an interesting one because if you remember, the car that's used in it isn't particularly... It's not a sports car. It's a um, BMW 750i L, which is actually kind of an estate car. It's like a businessman's estate car. It's not that nice. At the time, he's he's wearing his suit. He's got his Sony Ericsson... <laughs> controller and he's driving it around the car park it's not a cool car nobody looked at that car and thought that's amazing i really want that have that car and that's the only thing he really does with it drive it around with this remote control thing and you know around a car park and there's a funny joke where he picks it up from queue at the car rental and then it falls back into the car rental at the end and that's the joke with this car but the reason why they used that car is because the actual thing that they were pushing uh, bmw were pushing in that film wasn't the car it was the motorbike and it's the BMW R1200C motorcycle, which you remember him and I can't remember her name. Who's the actress? Waylon. Who sits on the back of the bike? Waylon. We'll Michelle Yeoh. Yes, Michelle Yeoh. So that bike is actually what they were pushing at the time. So that's why it got an amazing sequence and was far more screen time probably than, than the car. Um, because that car, that bike is actually a cruiser bike. So it's not really meant to be associated with moving fast being sporty, uh, but but they used it to kind of show off that it could be, and it was quite a big push for them. So the other car was really just a car that already existed and people were already driving, and they were just saying, this is quite a nice car as well that we've got. Uh,
0: so that was the kind of big push for Tomorrow Never Dies. Um, that BMW then... bike, uh, what I noticed, I watched it recently, Tomorrow Never Dies, that bike is so out of place. It stands out. Yeah. But... It's strange. Well, who? how likely is it that he was
2: driving around in a BMW car with a remote control and then he steals a bike and it's a new
0: bmw <laughs> yeah but it really like in, it, because it's it's next to all the other bikes the old run-down yeah. bikes so this is like gleaming it's just it is like an advert when well, he first gets he's in the it.
2: middle of some shanty town isn't he or yes. something
0: and he just picks up a <laughs> yeah i'll take this
2: one um so yeah that that was the focus of that and then the world is not enough is the third film that features um and that's the bmw z8 and if you remember it, doesn't, it also doesn't get a lot of screen time. It's heavily used. It actually gets cut in half during the daft caviar scene. <laughs> Flying chainsaw. Yeah, with Robbie sort of. Coltrane. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it does have a um, ground-to-air missile in it, and, and it does do a few things, but it's not really used heavily. It's a really nice car, though. The design of it is, is quite similar to the kind of body shape and stuff of, of the Aston Martins. And the interesting story behind that car is that it didn't even exist. It was a prototype model, that was originally used as a styling exercise for a 1997 Tokyo Motor Show. So it wasn't actually finished, didn't even have a name. When the production team um, was speaking to BMW, obviously had this three-year deal, they they saw this at the trade show and went, that's the one we want, we want that that car. And they were like, well, this, this isn't a real car yet. We can't have that in the film. And they were like, well, we want that. That's exactly what we're gonna take. So they had to create fake cars using the design on a kit chassis. So that uh, it, those cars in, uh, or the car that you see in *Worlds Not Enough* isn't a real car. It's just a body stuck on top of a, like a, just a standard moving chassis. Um, and if you look closely, if you ever get to see one of those cars, you might be at the Bond in Motion exhibit or something like that. Um, you can tell because they, they, there's no cuts in it. So you know how on a normal car you can open up the front of the car, you can open up the trunk. Can't do any of that. That it's just a body kit stuck on a chassis. (laughs) The only thing you can open is is the doors because uh, Brosnan says he'd like to be able to open the doors in scenes. So yeah, so that's quite an interesting point behind that car. Another interesting thing about that car is that it was designed by Henrik Fisker uh, for BMW, um, who actually also designed the Aston Martin DB9 and the V8 Vantage. So you can start to see why they wanted to go for that one, moving back towards that kind of classic design. Only six thousand were made. And it cost £90,000 to buy that car, so a little bit more expensive than the, the, the Z3 in, in GoldenEye. So that's the story of BMW and the Bond films. And it's finished, is it, World is Not Enough. In the next film, Die Another Day, they, they get the Aston Martin Vanquish.
1: Well, I think the BMW saga just sort of speaks volumes in terms of like, the importance of product placement to these films. Like these films co- co- coexist, they, they exist because of the coexisting nature of, of product placement. And unfortunately, you have to just follow the money. And, and when it comes to like, you know, if a car company is willing to give them the cars, then they'll go where the money takes them. And now luckily, yeah. you know, Aston Martin now has this great relationship with Bond that um, I guess I, I, you can't see them doing another deal like that. in the, again, in, at well, least in the near future with another car company.
2: Well, I think at the time they probably, the, the the deal they got out of BMW was phenomenal because if you think about what, having BMW in the film, you probably wouldn't have to pay that much to give an amazing car to a film company to, to use the cars. And bear in mind, they normally break these cars as well because they're using them for all sorts of stuff. They're costing, you know, 90 grand to, to give them and they're probably giving them two or three when they do it. It's quite a lot of money. But their James Bond film series also got all of the marketing globally from everything BMW is doing. And that's a lot of money. You're talking millions and millions of pounds of free advertising and marketing. So it's almost like a no-brainer when somebody comes to you and says, we'll do that. I doubt they ever got anything like that from Aston Martin. But the impact it had on the films, and people will talk about the BMW years of Bond, and it, they just didn't fit right, that having BMW in there. And people did notice it. They wanted an Aston Martin. And you look at not so much in Die Another Day when they brought it back in that because it <laughs> was kind of soured by the rest of the film <laughs> but when you go to casino royale and you see the db5 come out it just suddenly changes the film and you go yeah yeah i know i know yeah it's bond he's got his db5 that's perfect if he had come out in some other weird car you just it wouldn't have had the same same power so i think there's a level of you have to kind of make a good choice with it you couldn't, you can't just like Bourne could use anything you wanted, it doesn't matter really. It just has to have a nice car. But if Bond's changing stuff all the time, it loses that consistency across Bond. Whether that's you know the style of clothes he's wearing or all the cars he's driving, you have to have or drinking that level alcohol of free
0: Heineken. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, yeah, that's uh, was it alcohol free? Yeah, nice, <laughs> classic, yeah. But yeah, I think you have to, I think that the Aston Martin. St- um, and BMW story is quite an interesting uh, kind of um, motto for, for the films and that consistency which people actually need it, over over the course of the films it probably means a lot more than just the marketing money that they get from from having the cars associated with it so yeah there yeah. we go that's the BMW Bond story <laughs>
1: B is for Bogner Jr. Willie Bogner Jr. <laughs> so Wilhelm Hermann Bjorn Bogner Jr. was born in January 1942. He is a fashion designer, filmmaker and former Alpine ski racer. Now he's the son of Willie Bogner Sr. And... Willie Bogner Senior is the founder of Bogner. Uh, this is a ski fashion brand, uh, which apparently is credited with inventing athleisure, which is the fusion of sports and everyday fashion. Uh, Wheatley, you probably know better than me for ski wear. Is Bogner a ski brand that you're aware I've of? I've never, I've never heard of it. But <laughs> well, so let's get to the Willie himself. So his, so his impact on the Bond uh, franchise is twofold. So. You've got the fashion, but also he is considered or he was considered still is one of the best skiing cameramen in the world. His most notable work actually is in the James Bond films and he worked on them from 1969's On Our Majesty's Secret Service up to 1985's View to a Kill. So Bogner competed for Germany after turning 18 at the 1960 Winter Olympics. He became a ski ski champion, downhill ski champion. He was a double world student champion. He then started making films uh, in the 1960s um, and he made a film called Ski Fascination. Now, there's a bit of tragedy here, actually, because he was leading um, some skiers uh, when an avalanche occurred and several members of the crew uh, and members of the group died, including his girlfriend at the time. So he was later tried in a Swiss caught for homicide by negligence and he was acquitted, Mm. but eventually was charged with manslaughter by negligence and served a two-month suspended sentence. In his skiing career, uh, his best result was at the World Championships in 1966, and he was very a familiar face, uh, well uh, well known on the international ski scene until 1967, which is when he left to concentrate on filmmaking. So his impact on the Bond world begins with *On Majesty's Secret Service*. Now, um, the ski scenes in that film are absolutely spectacular. I don't know if you remember them, but um, you've obviously got Bond being chased by Blofeld's henchmen off Pisgloria Gloria, and what, where Willie Bogner Jr. sort of comes in, he he would mastermind the skiing scenes in collaboration with the directors in those scenes, particularly on *A* Majesty's Secret Service. He would he sort of pioneered the technique of skiing backwards with the cameras with the camera so that he could capture them as the as Bond is coming towards him yeah. and, the, and the bad guys are coming towards him. And so he would he would ski backwards with the skis turned backwards, if that makes sense. Uh, and he also pioneered the toboggan sequence in that film, where uh, you know they go down the toboggan toboggan run. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's quite a famous sequence. And then another fun fact for you in that film is that George Lazenby wears a B- a blue Bogner uh, skiing suit. Now the Bogner skiing suits will mm-hmm. come up uh, quite a lot in the Bond film, and they're well recon- easily recognised because on the uh, zip has a B.
2: Uh, and so I've never have known that. I, did, I didn't remember the the, the outfit he wears—the blue one. Yeah.
1: And so when you know to, know to look for the B on the um, on the ski suit, then yeah. then it pops up all the time. And, and so famously in, in in his next Bond film, The Spy Who Loved Me, Roger Moore wears the Bogner ski suit. It's the yellow Bogner ski suit. It has the B uh. on the, on the zip. Ah. And actually when you know when you watch I'll go for that one.
2: Yes. I'll go for the
1: yellow one. And when you watch it the bad guys also wear the Bogner ski suits as well. And the thing with Bogner stuff is, is it's very bright and colorful. So it just worked fit perfectly for for the James Bond uh, brand. So he he shot the scenes for the opening sequence. That was uh, he shot second unit. He orchestr- orchestrated the ski scenes in Sammerit. Which all was the precursor for the big cliff jump. And actually, the cliff jump was filmed in Canada, whereas the, the ski scenes running up to it were actually filmed in Switzerland. So, that's a fun fact for you. Mm. Uh, next Bond film he worked on was For Your Eyes Only. Uh, and again, Bond wears a blue Bogner ski jacket, Bogner pants, Bogner gloves. Uh, and uh, Bibi Dahl, uh, Lynn Holly Johnson, she wears a, a red ski suit with the black Western hat. You'll probably remember that quite um yeah. It's a it's a great one of the best Bond ski scenes ever in For Your Eyes. Only if you ask me, it's got the motorbike chasing Bond down the slopes, and it's it's absolutely fantastic. So it goes from the motorbikes. I mean, he, he was Willie Bogner was always about like one upping his last film, and he really mm. really pushed it on in uh, For Your Eyes Only. So that's got the bit where it, chasing Bond on the motorbike. You've got the all the skiers lined up and they fall over when he goes past, and then yeah. the yeah. the. The the chase goes from the slopes onto the toboggan track, so it's back onto the bobsleigh track. Um, so he was sort of really one upping what he'd done on Imagine Secret Service. And so Bond is on the skis, he's chasing a toboggan while being chased on a motorbike. And again, Bogner, it's got to be Roger Moore, hasn't it? It's got to be Roger Moore doing that. Um, and so Bogner, again, he invented a whole system where he was attached to the bobsleigh again, being filmed flying backwards to capture the sequence and when you watch it, it is gripping stuff you've never seen, when you know how it's being filmed and you got to think about it mm. well, I don't know, I've never been skiing, but I imagine it's quite a dangerous and difficult thing to just ski let alone be filming For, someone. It is forwards yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, (laughs) So yes, he was on a set of skis that allowed him to ski forwards and backwards to get the best shot. Unfortunately, on that film, there was an accident when they were filming the bobsleigh sequence and a uh, stuntman called Paolo Regon he died when he got trapped underneath the bobsleigh. Uh, He was just 23. Mm. Uh, So obviously, that's a bit of a shame. Sad story around that. Mm. So then his last Bond film is A View to a Kill. This is a pre-title sequence, another Roger Moore film. Bond wears the completely white Bogner outfit again with the B zipper on it, and he's got the big yep. fur fur hood. And is is this the one where he invents snowboarding? Yeah, well, come to that. So, Bogner masterminded <laughs> that in, entire sequence, and he, so Bond, yeah. There's a bit where he's on. There's a skidoo which is used, an electronic skidoo, which is not electronic, a motorised skidoo that's used very briefly. It crashes, explodes, and Bond takes the ski from underneath. Skis down the down the mountain on it. Now this is the first time, according to Willy Bogner, that snowboarding was ever captured in using cinematography in a film. So it's the first time it's ever seen in a film. Snowboarding. It's all thanks to to Willy Bogner Jr. So, yeah, he uses the ski to snowboard and he escapes over a lake. So he's he's. The ski skips over the lake and then the other people, they just fall into the lake. Um, And it's got the California Girls by the Beach Boys playing over it. It is so incongruous in that opening (laughs) sequence. It's got the amazing music and then all of a sudden Beach Boys.
2: Well, it isn't actually the Beach Boys, is it? It's a cover.
1: Well, yeah, that's the song, California Girls. If it's a cover or not, you you might know better than me. But um, he shoots the helicopter down with a flare and then a submarine pops up, uh, which is disguised as an iceberg. Um, yeah. And then Bond makes his escape. So yeah, that's a yeah, remember, quite yeah. an iconic sequence. Willy Bogner Junior won the um, Bambi Award uh, that that next year, uh, which is given by the German film and television industry to German filmmakers who have made a global impact. So um, quite a prestigious award for him. He went on to make a number of different films, including Fire, Ice, and Dynamite. Weekly.
2: Oh, hell, I didn't realise he'd done that.
1: It does work very well with Roger Moore, doesn't it? Starring Roger Moore, yeah. So that was really a showcase for his um, skiing uh, action sequences.
2: Brendan, if you haven't seen Fire Ice and Dynamite, don't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Which oh. I found
1: out is actually a sequel okay. to a film called Fire and Ice, but uh, Roger Moore is only in Fire, Ice, and Dynamite.
2: Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting concept. Certainly not very Bond-esque.
1: <laughs> doesn't Roger Moore play like a, a businessman? I can't even remember. But he's not really an ac- he's not really an action role, is it?
2: Um, it, well, he's some. I seem to remember for some reason everyone's sk- skating, uh, skiing, and snowboarding to win some prize. But it's like wacky races on right, skis, right. and Roger Moore's awarding the winner or something. That's about it. It's
1: all you need to he's know. Like the don't worry Isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So, talking at uh, the Munich Film Festival in 2014, Bogner said, first you ha- This is about making daring skiing sequences for films. First, you have to have the idea, which is insane." And then you have to turn on your brain and ask yourself, why is it not possible? And then you've got to find the right comrade in arms to make it happen. So that's it. So that carried on filmmaking. He's still alive now. Um, He's still up until 2016. He worked for the Bogner ski brand, uh, the family and company. But in 2016, he stepped down after 40 years and the company has been in a bit of decline. It used to it used to clothe the uh, German Winter Olympics team, but I think in 2016 they passed that on to Adidas, and that's basically been the start of the decline for that company. But yeah, that's uh, Willie Bogner Jr. fascinating character.
0: B is for Bond, James Bond. We <laughs> The inspiration. For the character of James Bond. Alright. So the author of a book called Birds in the West Indies, which this this is information that I'm sure most people will know um where where Fleming got the name from. But um he was big into his into his birds, Ian Fleming, and he had the book. And the author of that book was called James Bond. So he used he used the name and because he wanted the simplest, dullest, plainest sounding name he could find. And James Bond was much better than something more interesting, like Peregrine Carruthers, is what he compared it So, So Bond could have been called Peregrine Carruthers. Um, Ooh, I'm not sure. I... <laughs> more, that more couldn't have pulled that off. <laughs> um, exotic things would happen to him and around him, but he would be a neutral figure, an anonymous blunt instrument wielded by government department, which I think is, that quote now seems like, it's one of the most famous names in the world. You, you would not class it as dull and plain sounding. You you simply couldn't, hmm. which I thought has got a nice juxtaposition. So the author, James Bond, was born uh, in 1900, January the 4th, in America, where he lived until uh, his mother died. Then he moved to England, where he was educated, went to university, got a BA in ca- at Cambridge, uh, and then returned to America uh, once once he'd graduated, and then continued to become a renowned ornithologist. Uh, he's actually done a lot of very good work um, regarding birds and, and new discoveries and species. So he was just plugging away with his career as he was going and didn't know that Ian Fleming had borrowed his name. So he started noticing when he'd get phone calls late at night and his wife uh, would answer the the phone and it'd be young females calling (laughs) saying, is James there? (laughs) She, she was, she would have to be, be fobbing them off. And she was like, "What? I'm not sure what's going on until the books became famous in America as well. Um, and that's when they realised w- what had happened. So, uh, as 007 became more famous with the books uh, and then the movies, the real Bond liked the connection less and less be- because he was he was this professional ornithologist, renowned, and yet you've got the the other Bond who is this you know womanising, drinking all the time, killing people. So it's it's you know it's quite different to what he wanted to be. But presumably there were other people in the world at the time called James Bond as well. Absolutely, and... but this, this is where Ian Fleming had said he'd taken the the inspiration right. from. so it okay. was well known, was it, that he was the the name inspiration? Yeah, so he'd said it. This is where I've got it from. He wanted it to be plain, and he'd caught wind of it. So he did actually meet Ian Fleming 1964. He went to visit him in uh, at Goldeneye and um, in Jamaica, and he told Fleming, "I don't read your books. My wife reads them, but I never do." And Fleming replied, "I don't blame you." So um, that's a, a, a nice little interaction they had. So Fleming gave uh, Jim Bond a first edition copy of *You Only Live Twice*, signed to the real James Bond, from the thief of his identity. The that was nice book... Christmas
2: present for the wife.
0: <laughs> Very good. Yes. Um, It was actually put up for auction in December 2008 and it got £56,000. Wow. Yeah, that was quite quite the fee. Um, He was offered $100 to attend the uh, theatre premiere of Goldfinger and arrive by helicopter, which he sadly refused. Um, That would have been quite nice to have James Bond arrive by helicopter. Uh, There's also uh, references throughout the Bond movies so in Die Another Day the fictional Bond uh, is examining the book Birds of the West Indies uh, in the scene in Havana but they blur out the name so you can't see that it says James Bond on the cover but it is very much just
2: a shame that they did it in that film isn't it It could have been quite a nice poignant moment but it was an an
0: anniversary film wasn't it Die Another Day yes there's a lot of homages in that so uh, James Bond's wife Jim Bond I'll Jim Bond's wife told Fleming that her husband uh, saw the use of his name as a good joke, uh, all in all. So there was no bad blood. Um, Fleming said, I can only offer your, James Bond, unlimited use of the name Ian Fleming. Perhaps one day he will discover some particularly horrible species of bird, which he would like to christen in an insulting fashion. So... um, How lovely. um, So so moving on from that inspiration of the name, you've got the, the looks, so... Fleming had this idea of what James Bond was, uh, who he was, and what what he represented, and he d- he described in the books three times um, that he resembled Hoagy Carmichael, who was an American singer, and and also himself. So it's semi-biographical in terms of personality mm. and in casino Royale, vespa lint says he is very good looking he reminds me rather of hoagie carmichael but there is something cold and ruthless which the character bond is then told of and then looks in the mirror and is sort of studying himself notices uh, he's got a thin scar down his right cheek and it's like not much of a hoagie carmichael there thought bond as he filled a flat light gunmetal box with 50 of the Moreland cigarettes with the triple gold band there's Fleming's writing there with all that detail, rich detail. But mm. um, And then finally in Moonraker, Gala Brand makes the connection, rather like Hoagie Carmichael in a way, that black hair falling down over the right eyebrow, much of the same bones. Mm. So this starts to sort of really create that rich character of James Bond of what Ian Fleming wanted Bond to be. He also, he endowed him with many of his own traits and characteristics. They've got the same golf handicap. They like the same brands, a lot of the same brands that they use and a a lot of the wines and the way he'll take his food that's Ian Fleming's preferences put into the character of Bond and so the love of golf gambling uh, very closely resemble Ian Fleming, so that Mm. that fleshes out the whole thing, there is one final last piece of the puzzle, potentially there is another James Bond, so there was a wartime spy it's a Welsh guy called James Charles Bond, who, who was from Swansea. And he actually served under Ian Fleming as a special operations ah, executive.
1: Interesting.
0: Yeah. The problem is they were, they were all shackled by the Official Secrets Act. So this guy could never talk about it. He died in 1995, not being able to say anything. But there, there were documents found since when they, they've sort of eased the restrictions of the Official Secrets Act. And it showed paperwork that he was an elite SOE, working on missions under Ian Fleming. So that was all confirmed in that paperwork. And his grandson said, grandfather took my cousin Jenny when she was a teenager by the hand one day, saying, believe me when I tell you, I am the real James Bond. Nothing more was ever said and no questions were ever asked. So wow. there is no, there's no finding out because most of the people involved have, have passed on now, which is a shame. We might never know. That poor um, ornithologist... Reading that, oh, what
2: effort! Oh, it's a golden eye about this.
0: Yeah, well, the grandson of James Charles Bond thinks that that was all just a, sort of a red herring to divert away mm. from, because obviously the Official Secrets Act is something that was that just couldn't be even covered at all. So maybe it was, you know, just a nice cover up for for Fleming. But, yeah, yeah. So he didn't have to really tell the true story. But I, sh- I thought it was very very interesting. Fascinating. Yeah. So that's Brilliant. Bond. Like, it's like He's the guy
1: called John Lewis, who uh, every Christmas on Twitter gets bombarded with with tweets, <laughs> and he has to say, "I'm not, I'm not the John
2: Lewis." He replies to everyone, doesn't he? Yeah, what a loser. <laughs> <Hit> everyone. <free> <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he just replies to them angrily. It's not, it's not me. I'm the man, John Lewis, not the company.
1: Do you want to hear a fun fact linking it all together? Oh yes. So, you know, Matt Monroe, yep. managed by Don Black. His, yep. his biggest selling album was an album of Hoagie Carmichael covers. Oh,
2: ah. there we go, all tied together. And that brings it all quite nicely back to the start. <laughs> or the middle. Or the middle, yeah. Well, I guess thank you for
1: listening again this week. So join us next time for more from the James Bond A to Z podcast.
2: Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingram and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly. Everybody in your crew identifies as either
1: Big Mac Burger McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.